Good morning. We are going to continue our series, What on Earth Am I Here Part of His Family? We're learning that we're created, number three, to become like Christ. We call this process discipleship, the process of becoming more and more like Him. I learned that we're shaped to serve God. Um, we call this ministry. Mark talked about this last week. Not, we aren't put here for ourselves, but we are supposed to minister to one another. Today we're going to talk about being made for a mission. I don't know how many of you guys like, I, I get excited I hear getting made for, made for a mission. How many of you guys ever watched Mission Impossible? How many, I, a lot of you guys have not seen that. Am I that old? Far out. This, this movie was, was good. We like, everybody used to, to know what I was talking about with this movie. But this whole idea of like having a mission, of conquering, of winning, it, it is deeply hardwired in me. Um, I think it's in most people. Maybe it's just in me and apparently in my genes because my children have it. Uh, my, my wife made a comment and she was playing with my, my children. She made a comment to, um, I'm not sure if she said to Benaiah or to Ezekiel, but Ezekiel has decided that the pillows on the couch are evil dragons. And he is the hero who must vanquish them and save mom from the dragons. And so he'll just randomly take the pillows and just start ripping them off the couch and throwing them down and Hurrah! and then just beating them. You're like, what are you doing? I'm going to kill the dragon and save mom and puff out his little chest. And you're, like, you're awesome. And uh, it's just like wired in that we want to have a mission. We want to win. We want to accomplish. We want to be a hero. And you go, well, what mission were we made for? Were we made for slaying pillows or were we made for something more? John chapter 17, verse 18 says this, In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. Jesus gave us a mission. In Acts 20, verse 24, it says, I don't care about my life. The most important thing is that I complete my mission. The work that the Lord Jesus gave me to tell people the good news about God's grace. What is our mission? Our mission is to tell people the good news about God's grace. In fact, as Jesus' final words, as like, hey, I'm going to rally my disciples, and I'm going to give them their final instructions before I leave them. His final instructions were what we call the great commission, where he gave his disciples the mission of going out and making more disciples. But as a Christian, this should be our number one focus, yet for a lot of Christians, they don't even know what it is. I asked one group, and they less than 15% of them responded and knew what the Great Commission was. But our, our job is to walk out this Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. This is, or it's recorded, we'll probably read verse 19. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says that your mission is to go out and to make more disciples. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he says it again. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So our ministry is our service to believers. Our mission is our service to unbelievers. Your mission is to bring people to Jesus. And this is supposed to be our number one priority. 
It's going, all right, I'm going to love God and bring people to him. The problem is that for most Christians, it's not number one. And if it's not number one, it's very rarely number two or number three or four. In fact, it normally just drops way, way down on the list. In fact, if you don't intentionally make winning the lost a priority, it's probably going to be easier to find on your list of things starting from the bottom of what you don't prioritize, of what you don't care to do, of what you don't do at all, than from the top at what, at what should, where it should be. Jesus um, was so about this mission. When he, his ministry started, find him at 12 years old, he sits here and goes, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? It's the bookend on the one side. On the other side, on the cross, he looks and says, it is finished. His whole life, he goes, this is, I have a mission. I have a mission. I will accomplish the mission. And the mission is to bring people into right relationship with the father. Um, and you go, well, why is this so important? Because God loves us and God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Or this is the end of verse 3. Um, God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Who does he want to be saved? All men. When he says men, it means mankind. So women, you are still included. He wants all people to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slacking, not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everybody to be saved. God loves everybody. But it would be unjust to force everyone to be saved. Um, let me tell you this way. If you have a judge, say I have a judge that's my friend. He's a good judge, but he's my friend. And we're, and we're really close. One day I decide to go kill people. I kill 50 people. And I go before the judge. And I go to court, and the evidence comes out, and they're like, we witnessed you. We have video of you. See these people? You killed them. And the judge was to go, yep, he did it. But I like him. He's my friend. Innocent. Or... No sentence for you. Would that be just? No. That judge would get severely done over for this blatant disregard for justice. So if God did it, would it be just? And then, but, but there's, this, there's a crime and there's a penalty for the crime. Let me, let me confess one of my sins. How many of you guys can drive? Okay, I encourage you, don't drive like I did when I first got my license. Okay, with that being said, when I got my license, I drove too fast. I did not understand the concept that speed limits were actually a law that was meant to be obeyed. I thought they were merely um, roadside decorations that just hung around. So my, well, it's inevitable if you drive really fast, um, Eventually, you'll get a ticket. And eventually, my day, day came. I got pulled over and got written up for 101 and a 65. Um, and uh, it came with a fine. I think the cop lied. I think it was only going 100. But, and that actually made a, 
a lot of difference because there was a 35 and under over the speed limit and then 36 and over over the speed limit. So he got me in the next bracket. I'm like, punk. But if you'd have caught me five minutes earlier, you'd have caught me doing 115. So we'll just call it good. So, um, but here's what I did was wrong and there was a penalty. And if I recall correctly, it was $136 fine. But this has been over a decade, so I'm not exactly sure. On the, but at this time, I didn't have my own checking account. So you get the ticket, and it's like, all right, if you've never gotten a ticket, it says on there, like, sign it if you admit that you were wrong. And yeah, it was me. I was wrong. Sign the thing. And it's like, all right, send your fine to such and such address to make check out to whoever. So you're like, well, what do you do when you have a fine and you don't have a checking account? Hey, mom. <laughs> go to the bank. You get a bunch of cash. You go, hey, mom, I don't have a check. I need to write them a check. So now you have to confess that you just got a ticket. You're like, I, I, got, I, need, a, I need a check to write to, I think it was the state of Indiana or whoever it was. I was on my way home from Chicago. And uh, so I'm like, all right, I need, I need a check. So I, I hand her the $136 in cash. She writes a check to the state of Indiana or to the, I don't know who it was to, whoever it was to. And uh, I stick it in the envelope with my ticket that I signed and said, yes, I was an idiot, and I mailed it off to them. Now, when they received it, they didn't bust it out and go, ticket written to Daniel Vanderklok. Check written from Jeannie Vanderklok. Wait a second. It's not the same person. You must pay for your own crime, you little goober. Like, no. They didn't call up and say, ma'am, did he give you cash? We just want to make sure that he paid for his crime. No, they looked and they said, Fine, $136, check, $136, match, woo, clear, done. And it was done. Why? Because there was a fine, there was a penalty that had to be paid. They didn't care. When man sinned, there's a penalty that had to be paid. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He says, the greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for a friend. He says, I love the people, I love all of the people of the world enough that I will pay their fine. They don't just not have a checking account, they're bankrupt. They have no ability to pay. So I will pay and I will offer it to them, but they must receive it. And God gives us the responsibility of spreading this. Uh, Acts 26, the last couple of words in verse 17 on, it says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Over and over again, we're going to find that God gives us this mission. It says that we were created for, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So this is our, our mission. And you go, well, how serious is God about this mission? Let me tell you a make-believe story. I'm going to put you in the make-believe story. So you, hopefully this never happened to you. Okay, so. How many of you guys have a brother or sister? Okay. We're just going to imagine this as your brother and sister, except your brother and sister might not be the right age. So we're, you're going to be, you're at a pool, 
and you now have a brother or sister who's three years old. Okay? Um, this works better if it was your kid, but um, for those who in high school probably don't have a three-year-old kid. So you're, you're at the pool. You're there with a the three-year-old kid, and you're hanging out. Pool's about four feet deep, at least on this end of the pool. There's different adults that are around. There's one that's, you know, just an arm's reach or so from your, your kid, your brother or sister, the kid you're babysitting, this, this little kid that you're, you love and are caring for. And for some reason, you are tied up, unable to move. You are tied to a chair. Um, apparently, you were flailing and wanted to make sure you got even tans. You got tied to your chair to tan perfectly, whatever. You're, you're no, not able to move. And you look and see the child beginning to drown. What do you do? You yell. Why? Because there's an adult right next to them on a raft. He's, like, He's drowning! Grab him! Picture this response. But I'm comfortable. He's drowning! Like... You'd freak out, like, get off your butt, grab the kid, he's drowning. I don't care if you're comfortable. I don't know if I can reach him. Get off your butt! Like, you're going to freak out. You're like, you can't, the kid is drowning right there. And then they say, but I don't know if I can save him. Well, try! Like, you would freak out. I couldn't imagine being a father incapable of going into the pool myself because of being strapped down, looking and seeing my son drowning next to somebody who refused to take action and did nothing. I'm like, he drowning. If he drowns, you drown too. I'm going to get out of these ropes. Like, you just, you, you just see it. You just, I, I don't know. As a dad, I can feel like just the thought of it. I just begin to say it. I can feel my blood begin to boil inside of me. And just like, you're like, you have to do something. If you try and fail, so you tried. If they tried and they were too late, if they were sleeping as the kid was drowning and someone finally you threw something at them and you hit them, they're like, oh, he's drowning. They grabbed him and it was too late. Well, then they tried. But if they sit there and look at you and go, I'm comfortable. I can't quite reach them. I don't know if I could reach them. I bet somebody else could do it better. Shut up and do something. Like, as a father, like, it's just, like, this is even a real scenario and my blood boils and I'm ready to shoot somebody. Like, it's just, it, it gets you going. And then you think, God loves my neighbor more than I love my kids. God loves your neighbor, your classmate, your teacher, more than I love my neighbor. And to realize that he gave us the job of rescuing them, of warning them. So it's not even just a random stranger. It's like it's the lifeguard sitting there going, I don't want to save him. I'm getting a nice tan. You're like, I'm going to kill you. Like, that's, that's my kid. That's, that's a life. And your job is to reach them. And you're more interested in your tan. And in this scenario, it's easy. At least for me, it's easy to get heated. You're like, that's a kid. That's, um, but how often 
Is that our story? How often do we go, you know what? Going there and ministering to them is uncomfortable. You know what? Inviting them to church, I don't know if they'll listen to me. I don't know if I can make a difference. I bet somebody else could do it better. How easy is it to, to make a lame excuse and do nothing? When, when God looks at it and goes, I have equipped you, you go. This is our job. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. In 1 John 1, 3, he says that that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. He goes, we get to declare what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've encountered with God to others. This is our mission. And it's easy, and a lot of Christians say it's the pastor's job. They look in the pool and they go, there's a lifeguard over there. Yeah, sure, I might be able to reach him, but there's a lifeguard right there. The lifeguards, it's their job. Yeah, sure, I can touch them, but the lifeguard will save them. It's the lifeguard's fault. And they go, it's the pastor's fault. The pastor will reach them. I'm just, I'm just not a pastor. Okay. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. says, and he himself gave some of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Who's supposed to do the ministry? The saints, not the pastor. The pastor is like a coach. Anyone ever play a sport with a coach? Does the coach score the points? The coach isn't allowed to play. They're the coach. The coach instructs, encourages, equips, teaches, motivates the players to play the game. And it goes, the people that it lists, their job isn't to play the game. Their job is to equip the team. We are the team. As the body of believers, every Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, if you say, I am a follower of Jesus, then your job is to spread his life. Your job is to partner with him in reaching the lost. And here's a great question to ask yourself. If every Christian was just like me, what would the church look like? If every Christian witnessed like me and had the same attitude about evangelism and about God that I have, would the church thrive or die? If, if everyone acted like me, would anyone get saved? Would anyone get invited to church? Would it be packed or not? And when you kind of magnify and blow up what you're doing to the global scale, all of a sudden you go, you know what, that'd be really sad or that'd be awesome. And it kind of lets you check going, all right, am I doing my Part. And we try to make it easy for you. We've got theme nights. We do different things to try to make it easy for you to invite people. We've got a series coming up in April. We're going to be doing a Divergent series. It's going to be a theme night that runs for an entire month. All of the Wednesdays in April. It's going to be a great excuse. We're going to have games, fun, food to invite friends. Why? Because we want your friends to encounter Jesus. And if they can come to have fun and meet Jesus, we call it a win. 
And if I got to spend money to have games and food, we're going to do something to make it easy for you to bring people to a place where they can hear about Jesus. Because if they never hear about Jesus, they can't make Jesus the Lord of their life. God wants to partner with us. And the first time that I began to understand that God actually wanted to partner with me, honestly, I, I bawled. I just... It floored me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. I read this verse, and it was one day, just this light bulb came on. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And I, I stopped right there. I'm like, what's lacking in Christ's affliction? Like, he paid the price. It told us that his blood paid the price for everyone. Like, I'm like, all right, his like anyone who'd call on his name could be saved. And it went through and said that his body was the perfect sacrifice. And I'm like, what could possibly be lacking in his affliction? And then in following this, it goes, you know, uh, for the, in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, there's the church. And then it goes through, and there's a large preposition as it goes through, uh, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given for uh, to me, for you. And then it ends, what was lacking? To make the word of God fully known. He goes, his affliction was complete in the price that he paid for forgiveness, but getting it out there still is needed. And Paul goes, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake that I am filling up what is lacking. He goes, I am paying the price to get the news of what he did out so that the forgiveness that he purchased can be received. And I sat there and I begin, I begin to cry going that this is my job. That my job, that what Jesus did is incomplete if they don't receive it. So my job, what Jesus did rests on me following through. And this, this, like, this realization, this weight just like hit me of, how important it is that I begin to share it, that I am actually a partner with Jesus in seeing it come to pass. He did the hard work of actually paying the price, but it is my job to get the paid for price, the paid for forgiveness out there. Now I am this partner. John chapter 17, actually we read that one. Here we'll go to John 20, 21. It says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. He goes, I am making you my partner to carry out this mission. And as I was looking at this, I was recalling a story that a student told me. I have it written down. Um, this was a student a few years back in the ground floor. He shared with me a story, and I said, can you write that down for me? He said, sure. His name was Corey. Corey was awesome. But Corey got, on, got this concept that he was on a mission that he was partnered with Jesus. I think it was a band camp. It was like some camp. I think it was band. And he saw a kid who just was getting picked on a little bit, and he tried to reach out to the kid, and the kid kept blowing him off. And he's like, all right, but I'm just, I'm here, and I'm on mission. I, I'm, my mission here on earth is to, um, to introduce people to Jesus. And as the week went on, he kept getting rejected. But the last night of camp, that kid got moved into his cabin. Why the kid got moved, I got no idea, but he got moved into his cabin. And so he started talking to him, and finally that kid didn't blow him off. He was stuck in the cabin there, and as they were talking, 
he began to share. And it wasn't like, oh, guess what? You've come in. I have a word from the Lord. Guess what? He loves you. He saw what you did last Tuesday. And it was nothing crazy, nothing spooky. He's just like, hey, how are you? Hey, you know, this is my name. What's your name? You know, what do you like to do? Hey, this is what I like to do. Oh, yeah, this is what you like to do. That's kind of fun. I like that too. And they just started having a conversation. In this conversation, going back and forth, somehow came up. And uh, the kid who came in, well, named Bob, Bob, told me how life had been really rough and how his dad was really mean to him. Felt really bad about it, and that's when he started crying. And as Bob started crying, a couple other guys in the cabin noticed and began to come over, trying to help um, with Bob, who was crying. And as they, they began to talk, all of a sudden, everybody began to kind of share just kind of the difficulties of life and begin to talk. And it wasn't very long before they had the entire cabin all gathered around. And as he began to talk with the entire cabin... Um, he realized that he was having an opportunity. They noticed a book that he had there, and someone asked, like, what's, what's that Jesus Freak book that you've got there? And he goes, oh, this is a bunch of stories about people who gave their life for Jesus. And he, he shared with them a little story. And they looked at him and go, well, can you tell us a little bit more? We want to know the story of Jesus. He shared with them the story. He got to go out with, with Bob and prayed with Bob, and Bob made Jesus the Lord of his life. And he went back and he began to talk. And he said, then as time went on, everyone else joined in and got saved. Mike was the last one to get saved. When I went outside, then came back in, it was 3.46 in the morning. I noticed that it had taken, almost taken seven hours to complete my task. It was an amazing experience that night. Seven hours to complete my task. And just this concept, this idea, I'm on task. He recognized something, and he changed his entire cabin. He changed their lives forever, not because he was a pastor, not because, but be, if anything, great, but because he just caught on to this. I am partnering with Jesus. I don't need another call. I don't need God to ring a bell and go, ding-a-ling-ling-ling, wake up, get up, and go. He goes, no, he did that before he left. He said, go into all creation and preach the gospel. He goes, he gave the commissioning, my job is to go. My job is to partner with him to spread the gospel. And I need to do it with all my heart. Um, you need no other call. God has no plan B. It rests on us spreading the gospel. And did you know that there's people that you can reach that I can never reach? There's a lot of people that discount me because I'm a pastor. They, that's just your job. But they look at you and they go, when you tell them your story, you're a satisfied customer. They look at me like I'm a salesman. They look and go, this is what you do. But when you say, you know what? This is what happened in my life and this is the difference that God's made in me. This is the hope. This is the forgiveness. This is the change. This is the lessons that I've learned. This is, all of a sudden, it hits home. Stories are so captivating. In the book, uh, Throughout the New Testament, Paul shares his testimony six times. Over and over again, he goes through. In the day of Pentecost, the apostles begin to speak in tongues. He said people begin to understand them. They weren't speaking theology. 
They weren't going through and declaring creeds. So they were declaring the works of God. When the Holy Spirit was going to speak through, it declared the works of God. This is what sharing your story is. And you go, if it's so easy as just simply declaring my stories, it's simply telling people what God's done in me and offering what God's done in me, letting them know it's available to them, then why don't more people do it? And one of the big things is the dispersion, dispersed responsibility. You go, what is that? Let me tell you about Kitty. Kitty Jonitas. I may have butchered her name. She was murdered in 1964, and 38 people witnessed it. I did nothing. You go, why did so many people do nothing? In fact, that was what a bunch of newspaper articles were about the sick, twisted people of New York who would see something and do nothing. And how they heard her scream and crying for help and they, people flicked on their lights, looked out, watched her getting stabbed and did nothing. And as they did this, they, they, dis- they discovered a couple of psychologists started doing some research going, why could people see something so awful and do nothing? Because everybody looked out and saw that other people looked out and saw and figured that somebody else must be doing something. That somebody else must be more qualified to do something. And they did some experiments. They did them. They did one. I got the article on my phone here. They did everything from uh, a seizure test. They had somebody in a cubicle. They said, all right, you've got an intercom and you're talking to somebody else. And if it was a one-on-one situation, that person said, you know what, hey, sometimes I struggle with seizures, need help. And they go on, and, and then they start to have a seizure and begin to ask for help that they might die. Uh, 85% of the participants who were in the situation were just them and, and the person who was having the seizure. So they believed they were the only witness to the seizure, left their cubicles and went to help. But when they told them that there were three people, 62% of the people um, went to help. When they said they were one of six people involved on the intercoms, only 31% went to help because they were like, somebody else can help. Somebody else is probably better qualified. Somebody else will do it. And they did this with that test. They did one with smoke underneath the door. They got people working on a task. They had smoke pouring underneath the door. And if they were on their own, they went and reported it. If there was somebody else there, they hesitated to report it. And if somebody else was there and did nothing, most everybody would dismiss it. They did a test when they had somebody and they had a, in the room next door, there was a crashing and a crying and asking, yelling for help. And on their own, people would run in and help. And if they stuck somebody else in there and somebody else would say something like, um, probably a tape, probably another experiment, the amount of people that would help just dropped to the floor. But if somebody would say something like, oh, that sounds bad, People started to want to do something. And if someone said, we should go help them, everybody got up and went and helped them. So often as Christians, we look around and we see nobody else moving and we go, it must not be a real emergency. We look and we go, well, somebody else will reach them. Somebody else will be more qualified. 38 people did nothing. So Kitty died. A couple years ago, my neighbor died. I've been praying for that neighbor, and I've been witnessing to him, 
But when he died, all of a sudden, it just kind of shook me. How much have I done? Because the Bible says that if someone is going to hell and you warn them, it says if someone's sins, they're going to pay for their sins. It says if you warn them and they refuse to listen, their blood is on their own head. But if you refuse to warn them, they'll die for their sin, but their blood is on your head. And I sat there going, am I, did I do enough? Am I clear? There are choices I can't make. But did I do enough to declare who God is to give them an opportunity? If they rejected it, that's not my fault. If I try and I fail, it's okay. Did I just sit there and say, I'm comfortable? Or did I reach out? When you go, well, how should I be reaching out? One story that just kind of painted a good picture for me of the urgency that we should have. It's not just a, you know what, hey, sure, you should probably get saved. Hey, you should probably come to church with me. Now, this is the Bible says to compel them to come in. And what does that look like? I read this story of a dense autopilot in a fog on a major highway outside of London. The hazard warning lights were on, but were ignored by most drivers at 615 in the morning, a lorry carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in an accident. Within minutes, the carnage was in uh, the carriageway was engulfed in carnage. Dozens of cars were wrecked. Ten people were killed. A police patrol car was soon on the scene. Two policemen ran back to the motorway to stop oncoming traffic. They waved their arms and shouted as loud as they could, but most drivers took no notice and raced on towards the disaster that awaited them. The policemen then picked up traffic cones and flung them at the car's windscreens in a desperate attempt to warn drivers of their danger. One told how tear, tears streamed down his face as car after car went by, and he waited for the sickening sound of impact as they hit the growing mass of wreckage further down the road. And I got thinking about being that officer of watching people coming screaming past you to what you knew was a certain crash that was going to be hazardous, whether it was deadly to them or not, that you knew it was costing people. And the, this attempt at how hard would you try and throwing things at them and so screaming, trying to save their life and then realizing that we're, we're, what we have to offer is so much greater. What we're offering and trying to save them from is so much larger than an accident waiting to happen. The hell is eternal. An accident just sucks for now. Even if it kills you, it sends you to where you're going to be eternally. We get to help people make the decision to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offered to make him the Lord of their life that affects eternity. So I ask, who's going to be in heaven? Because of you? Who are you witnessing to? Are you doing everything that you can? Or are you just kind of going, well, I'm comfortable. I don't know if I can reach them. I think the kid is too far away. I would have to get off my inner tube. I'm too worried they might reject me.
I want to challenge everybody to try to think of somebody that you know who doesn't know Jesus. Go, what can you do to witness? But if you're here saying, well, I don't know Jesus. I don't know this Jesus that you're, that you're speaking of, this one that loves me enough to pay the penalty for my crime. This God that loves me enough that he commissioned all of his followers to try to reach me. I want to know him. I want to receive the forgiveness. I don't want to blindly go on into the accident. I don't want to blindly walk into hell. I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to begin to live for God. If that's you, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, this is your chance to make Jesus the Lord of your life, to begin to live for him, to join us in the purposes that God made you for. But you can know that you're forgiven, that you're right with God and on your way to heaven. One, two, get ready. Three, raise up your hands nice and high. That's me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want him to come in and to wash away my sins. Awesome. God, I ask that you give us all strength and wisdom, words to say, that you would place someone on each of our hearts that we can reach out to, that we could shine your light and your life in our homes, in our schools, in our worlds, that you would help us to give voice to what you've done in our lives and that it would draw others towards you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.